Hi, this is Pastor Patrick of Calvary Chapel, Wichita. I pray that the Lord will richly bless you as you listen to this message. 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're going to be today. 1 Samuel 13. And before we get into this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we prepare to study your word, um, Father, I just pray that you speak to our hearts individually from your word, that it is the living, breathing word of God, that you would meet us here in this place, that these lives uh, that lived so many thousands of years ago uh, can speak so readily to us today, uh, that, Father, we would have our hearts open to what you want to speak to us. If there's things that we need to change, if there's things that we're doing right, encourage us, exhort us, uh, all through your word, all by your spirit. We thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we come here thankful that we can meet here together on a Sunday morning. Um, Help us to never forget those that want to be here and can't. And we lift all this up in your glorious name, Jesus. Amen. 1 Samuel 13. Uh, In 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt was inaugurated as the 32nd president of the United States. In his famous inauguration speech, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. When he swore his oath of presidency, he did so on a 1686 Dutch Bible that had been passed down through his family. It was open to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, that doesn't mean that FDR was a Christian. I don't know if he was, but he certainly understood what Christianity meant because his statement is true and it applies to what we're talking about today, fear and faith. These two terms should be mutually exclusive to the Christian, but oftentimes they aren't. And before we get too far into this, I want to define what we're talking about. Nelson defines faith as confidence in the testimony of another. Basically, you believe what the person has said. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It goes hand in hand. We believe God in his testimony because he said it. Whether we can see it or not, that's faith. So what's the opposite of faith? It's fear. Now, fear can be defined two ways. The first is scripture says, fear the Lord, Leviticus 25, 36. This type of fear is respect, reverence. It's healthy. It's necessary. It's crucial. The other kind of fear is anxiety, uneasiness about something. It's the opposite of faith. If faith is to believe the testimony, then fear is that simple unbelief of that same testimony. So what do these terms and FDR's quote have to do with the Bible, you might be asking? Today, we're going to look at two people, a father and a son. One was fearful, the other was faithful. There's only one in the story that we should emulate as Christians. I think it's going to be obvious to you, but that's your quest as we go through this, is to figure out which one we should copy. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you haven't already. Verse 1 says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Yes, I'm going to stop already. feel like Patrick's here. I'm going to jump off on a sidebar here because this really isn't the main point of my study, but I teach from the New American Standard version of the Bible. If you're reading a New King James version, an NIV, an NLT, or any other version that was named after a king or a country, then you have something completely different. And 
Saul may have been 30 years old when he started to reign, and he may have reigned 42 years, but this isn't the proof text for that. The Hebrew here is close to Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Probably this is Saul's second year as king, but really there's no definitive answer on that because as the text has been passed down through the generations, we don't have the original in that particular verse. So what do you guys think about that? People say all the time that the Bible is full of errors and it can't be trusted. Well, I believe in inerrancy of scripture, that it was infallible in its original languages as it was written, that it's complete. So what do we do with verses like these? Hopefully it does for you what it did for me. You know, just this one verse alone caused me to be in several different translations of the Bible, caused me to be in several commentaries, caused me to look up the Hebrew to Greek to English lexicon to find out what the original languages were saying. And at the end of my journey, you know what I found? That it doesn't matter if Saul is 30, doesn't matter if he's 40, if this is his first or his second year, none of that really matters to the story. The principle of the story is the same. I think God has allowed verses just like these to come down to us through the ages to just see if we're going to get sideways about things like this. Are we going to get focused on the very first verse that ruins the rest of the story for us? Or we go, hmm, I can't put God in a box. Maybe I don't have God figured out all the time. So that's my soapbox, but let's move on. Verse 2. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gebeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Now, a couple chapters before, Saul became angry about how the Ammonites were threatening Jabesh-Gilead, and he summoned the men of Israel to come together to form a militia, and 300,000 fighting men showed up. Once that was over... Saul goes on about making a permanent army, uh, professional soldiers, and he's got 3,000 men. 2,000 stay with him and 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. Incidentally, if Jonathan is old enough to command an army, he, Saul probably wasn't 30 at the time. There are two towns, Michmash and Gebeah or Geba, which are about 15 miles apart. So look at verses 3 to 4. It says, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba which means to destroy them. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had spent in the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. So see what's going on here. Jonathan attacks a Philistine garrison, and everyone hears that Saul had won the battle. So it's nothing like being invisible, being a son. What you have is the Philistines have the Israelites in bondage. They're keeping control of the land by setting up these military outposts all over the land, these garrisons. And anytime that the Israelites try to do anything, they stomp them down, kill them. Jonathan sees one of these, and he and his men attack it and win. So the Philistines aren't very happy about this. It's a revolt. It's an uprising. Now, Saul is the king. So Jonathan is waging war on his behalf. So Saul getting the credit for the victory can seem innocent at first. It's no different than we'd say President Barack Obama bombed Libya. Last I checked, his plane doesn't carry bombs. No, our combat troops did it on his behalf. Uh, 
But we're going to see that Saul has an issue with pride. And maybe it wasn't so innocent that he took credit for this victory. Verses 5 to 7. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead, but as for Saul... He was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Again, we have some discrepancy on numbers. The 30,000, some scholars think should be 3,000 because the the words are very similar in the Hebrew. The point is that Israel is outnumbered, overwhelmingly. They're outgunned, as numerous as the sand on the seashore is how they describe the army. Saul's army sees this massive army in front of them, and they run scared. They start hiding everywhere. The beginning of fear can seem very logical, and it can seem like that to us as well. We look at the circumstances in front of us, whatever's right here, and we think logically, well, this is a bad situation. But God doesn't always call us to logical thinking. The ones that stayed with Saul are trembling, but they stayed. They're not the ones hiding, so they get some credit. This is supposed to be the army of God's people, though. Why are any of them scared? Why are they afraid? Some of these very men had faced the army of the Ammonites, that 300,000 Israelites versus the Ammonites, and won. It would be normal for these commanders to study their past military victories and defeats and to develop tactics for the future. No doubt they had studied Joshua's battles as he came into the Promised Land, defeating the Canaanites and all the other ites that were in the land at the time. So why are all the people scared? It's no faith. Remember that fear is the opposite or the lack of faith. They're focused on Saul as their king instead of God their king. So they have no faith in Saul, no faith in God, no faith. They didn't believe God's testimony when he said he could deliver them. The prophet Samuel had warned them about this, that if they picked a king, instead of trusting God to be their king, the king would be their downfall. Now, it's going to be true in a literal sense, but it's also true because they put Saul on the throne of their hearts instead of God. They thought he was going to solve their problems for them. It's not hard for us to understand because when God isn't on the throne of our hearts, it's easy to get focused on whatever's in front of us and we get overwhelmed. Again, we can argue that really, well, we're just thinking logically. But are we? Or is it our lack of faith and fear really guiding our decisions? When all we see is the army and we start to look at our own ability and try to figure out how it is that we're going to fight and win, that's when we get sideways. All God ever wanted his people to do was to look to him. All he wants us to do when faced with overwhelming odds in front of us is to look to him. Faith equals believing even when we don't see how God's going to do it. Doesn't make sense. It's not logical, but I know God can. All the Israelites could do was focus on what they could see. Let's jump down to verses 19 to 23. It says, Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. 
So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This lets us in on another reason that these Israelites were so fearful. They have no weapons. And in an army of 3,000, there are two swords. So not only are they facing an army as numerous as the sand on the seashore, but they're doing it with shovels and pitchforks. It can be easy to sympathize with the Jews because in the same situation, how would you react? How do we react? Faced with a vast army in front of you and you look down and you see your shovel in your hands, you know, fight or run, what's the choice? It's easy to Monday morning quarterback this group and say, well, faced with the same decision, I, I would be faithful. You know, I would choose to walk with God and live by faith. But do we? Face not with an army, but with bills, work, a failing marriage, family problems, friends, ministry, health problems. How do we respond? Is it by faith, trusting in God who can provide and is bigger than our circumstances? Or do we look at our own ability, our shovels in our hands, and we start to fear a little, maybe a lot, maybe even run from the situation? I personally wish I didn't identify so well with the Israelites. It'd make me feel better. So look at verses 8 and 9. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. Uh-oh. Anybody think that Saul just screwed up a little bit? Yeah. Samuel made a prophecy to Saul probably two years earlier, back in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10, verse 8 says, and you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. That was Samuel's prophecy to Saul. So Saul finds himself in Gilgal, which should have been a really big clue. His army is scattering before his eyes. Everybody's running, they're hiding, they're scared, they're crying. And it says that Saul waited seven days, but we don't know if he waited until the end of the seventh day. Did he do it at midday? I don't know. Saul could have done it at any point during that day. The point is that Saul shouldn't have done it at all. This was only what God's priests were supposed to do is offer up the sacrifices. Even if Samuel were unfaithful and never showed up, let's just say that Samuel was just a big fat liar and everything he said was a lie it still didn't excuse what Saul did. So we see why Saul's men aren't trusting in the Lord. They're just following the example of their leader. We serve Jesus and we should act like him. We act like the people we serve. They're serving Saul, they run scared just like he is. Now wait a minute, you might be saying, well, he's not running scared, he's just offering sacrifices. That's not running scared. 
Why do you think Saul offered those sacrifices? Well, let him answer. Verses 10 to 12. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So Samuel's approaching just like he said he would and he smells a cookout. Now, why do you suppose that Saul went out to meet Samuel? He's trying to cover up what he's done. He doesn't want Samuel going into the camp where the cookout's at. Saul is the boy with his hand in the cookie jar. He's been caught in his sin. Samuel isn't fooled. He knows that something's up, and he asks Saul, what have you done? When he looks at Samuel, he gets that look that my little boys get, and he just knows He's like, you did something, just tell me what it is and let's get this over with quicker. So Saul gives the typical response we expect from someone trying to justify what they've done. Saul would have us believe he's really a victim here. You you see, all the people were leaving. They're running scared, they're hiding. And, And Samuel, well, he didn't come at the right time, even though the cookout's still going when he gets there, so it must be the same day. And those pesky Philistines are gathering for war. I mean, what would you do? I mean, what could he do? He forced himself to make the sacrifice. The way Saul tells the story, I'm ready to pin a medal on him. This sounds like every person that's ever tried to justify their sin. I didn't want to. I had to. I I didn't have a choice. No, Saul had a choice. He could have chosen faith and believed. He could have believed Samuel, even though he, Samuel hadn't shown up yet. He could have chosen to believe that even if Samuel didn't come, God could still deliver them. Instead, Saul had a superstitious belief in God. And he thought God was just as superstitious as he was. That somehow by making the sacrifice, that now God is now obligated to bless us. In Hosea 6.6, 6, God says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's what God's always wanted. What that means is that God's desire was and always has been that we would seek to know him instead of simply going through the motions, going through religious rituals because we think that's what God likes, thinking that God's some kind of good luck charm. A story that illustrated this very pointedly for me. I got called out on a homicidal person, wanted to kill people, had swords. We showed up. Hey, he had swords and he wanted to kill people. He was very entertaining. Got called out on the same guy again. And this time uh, he was threatening to kill his mother. He's about 21, lives in an apartment by himself. And I talked to his dad and his dad said, you know, this is the only time I've truly been scared of my son. I think he's really going to kill someone. So I go up and I start knocking on the door of his apartment. He's in there screaming, hollering, and yelling, saying that he's Jesus. I tell him I know Jesus and Jesus doesn't live in that apartment complex. Um, <laughs> that made him more angry. Um, so I've had enough of dealing with him. And so I force the door open. As soon as I open the door, there's a butcher knife in the door right at head height. 
Not a good sign, but I'm not smart, so I keep going. He's barricaded himself in the bathroom, so gun drawn, I order him out. He comes out holding a Bible like a shield. Like somehow I'm not going to shoot through a Bible. (sighs) The thing that surprised me the most is as I walked through his apartment between all the booze, the porn, and the marijuana, the last thing I expected to see was this guy coming out holding a Bible. The problem, he had the exact same superstitious faith in God that Saul does. This is a book. It's paper and ink. You can stick it under your kitchen table when it's wobbly to steady it. If you don't believe in the author, in Christ himself, the author of this book, it's just a book. It doesn't mean anything. That's the problem that Saul got caught up in. He thought the sacrifice meant something. No, it was the heart behind the sacrifice that meant something. It was that contrition that I've done something wrong. I'm sorry for my sin. That's why I made the sacrifice. Now Saul just used it as a good luck charm. So look at verses 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Samuel tells us that you're a fool if you don't obey the Lord. I agree. It's fairly simple. God knew all this was going to happen way back when the people were crying out for a king. Give us a king. We want to be just like the people around us. You don't want a king. Let me be your king. No, we want a king. God warned them. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us in life is for God to give us exactly what we asked for. Saul, upon hearing these words from Samuel, he has no defense. He's speechless. Samuel said, God has sought after a man after his own heart. This is going to be King David. But David gets the position by default. It wasn't meant to be. You know, Saul had the opportunity to walk by faith he could have chosen the Lord. Instead of believing what God said, he chose to let fear guide him, and he suffers the consequences. He chose to look at the army in front of him, to look at his army of scared men with shovels and fear what was in front of him. He could have chosen faith in God, trusting that even though he didn't see how, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know God can save us, The result is the entire kingdom is ripped away from Saul. More than that, though, we really never see Saul come back to the Lord the way he started. So most likely the result is eternal judgment for Saul. This needs to be a wake-up call to some of you here today. Are you letting fear govern and rule your lives? Is the stuff that you see in front of you too much for you to handle on your own? Stop doing it on your own. God didn't call us to do this on our own. Believe in the Lord. Believe in Jesus. Believe that God is bigger than what's in front of you. Believe in his written word that God has given us. Believe and live by faith, not by fear. Look at verses 15 to 18. It says, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gebeah, Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 
Now Saul and his son Jonathan, the people who were present with them, were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. So finishing up this chapter, we see the 3,000 has now dwindled to 600. So if the men were afraid before, it's getting a lot worse. The Israelites are hemmed in. They've got people surrounding them. And these raiding parties of the Philistines go out to the north, the east, and the southwest from Michmash. And they're sending out these raiding parties hoping to quench any kind of uprising that comes from the Israelites. It makes it very difficult for Saul to run. He can't go anywhere because he's going to run into one of these bands of people. So he stays put. He hunkers down, afraid. It would have been a really good time to pray. We don't see that. Hard to believe that with all that Saul has done, he is still so stubborn, he won't humble himself before the Lord. So we end that chapter, and Saul and the Israelites have shown us a pretty good example of what running in fear is. To look at the situation in front of you, to look at your own ability, and realize that you can't win, and that's where you stop. You just stop right there in your tracks. You know, God must hate me. Life is hard. Boo-hoo. But there's another way. So let's go to chapter 14. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So enter Jonathan. Jonathan sees a garrison and wants to go over and take his armor bearer. Now, Jonathan, he's defeated one of these Philistine garrisons before, back at the beginning of chapter 13. So is he just relying and trusting on his own ability? Well, God's given me victory in the past, so he's going to give me victory again. Let's just go do this. It's easy. You know, last time he had a thousand men at his disposal. Now he only has one. Maybe Jonathan's crazy. It's a possibility. And why doesn't he want his father to know that he's crazy? You know, well, last time Saul took the credit for the victory. He took all the glory. So maybe Jonathan is just glory hunting here. And he, he wants all the glory for himself, so that's why he's not going to tell his father. Or could it be that Jonathan is going to take a step of faith and he doesn't want all the negative questions that I just posed? Anytime you step out in faith, truly doing something seemingly crazy that God has called you to do, people will try and tell you that you're wrong, that you're not following the Lord. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is not tell too many people what God's called you to do until it's over. Jonathan knows his father, and he knows his father has a lack of faith. He's witnessed it. They're hiding. God's army is hiding. That's a big clue. So, Jonathan's like, why bring this up until it's over? Some could argue that Jonathan is being deceitful since he's not telling the king that he's leaving. But we have to remember that God has called us to obey his authority over the authorities put over us. We are to obey the authority put over us unless it violates walking by faith with him. So let's look at verses 2 to 5. 
Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Hetub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sanaa. The one crag rose to the north opposite Michmash, and the other, the south opposite Geba. So Saul is still in Gebeah, and notice that he has a priest in his midst. This sheds a lot of light on Saul's arrogance in the previous chapter. You know, Saul could have had the priest make the sacrifice to God. Instead, he chose to do it himself. Saul could have gone to the priest and said, hey, why don't you pray for us as we go into this battle? He doesn't do that. So Saul and his arrogance and fear, which is always a dangerous combination, chose instead to do all that himself, to put himself on the throne. So the camp doesn't know that Jonathan left. He snuck out and he goes towards the Philistine garrison. And apparently the garrison is on this other side of this very narrow passage with these two rocks on both sides. He's got to enter by the narrow gate. He's got to enter through the narrow passage. Let's look at verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. I want to read that again. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. This is where the faith of Jonathan is shown. And this is the greatest verse in our study today because of the word perhaps. New King James Version says maybe, but perhaps sounds kind of British, so I like it. Uh, both words mean the same thing, though. It means uncertainty means an unknown outcome. I don't know what's going to happen. That's what it means. By Jonathan saying perhaps, he is showing where his faith is and who it's in. You see, when we're called of God to do something seemingly big or small, the call of God or the vision, it bolsters our faith. It reinforces it. Take Gideon. Gideon's a good example of this. He was fearful at first having to go and fight the Midianites and the Amalekites with only 300 men. Incidentally, half of Saul's army. God said, go do this. And Gideon hesitated. I don't know if it's God. I need proofs. I need this. I need that. But God told him not only that he would defeat them, God was faithful to him and gave him those proofs along the way. And all of that was to strengthen Gideon's weak faith. But notice here that Jonathan walks into this whole encounter saying, perhaps, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe the Lord will give us victory. He has no calling from God. God didn't tell him, go smite the Philistine garrison. God didn't say that. He has no vision, no assurance, no wet or dry fleece. He's got none of that. He's got no assurance that he's going to come out on top. But he walks forward anyways because he knows his God. Jonathan shows here that he isn't trusting in the call of God, 
but in God's character, trusting in who God is, the almighty God, the all-powerful God, the God that provided a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to himself, the God that gave his son Jesus for just that purpose. That's the God that Jonathan trusts in. Jonathan says that the Lord isn't restrained. He's not. He's not restrained not by making sacrifices, not by saying the right words, not by religious rituals that are carried out with no faith, and not by the amount of men. He's God. If he wants to save the Israelites by two men, he can do that. If he wants to use no army at all, God can do that too. If he wants to use the biggest army that the world has ever seen amassed, yep, God can do that too. Jonathan knows well the idea of Romans 8.31. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who's against us if this is our God? No one. Jonathan wants God to know he's on his team. He's willing to walk forward trusting in God, having faith in God, even if he doesn't know what the future holds, or if what he sees right in front of him doesn't make a lot of sense and it looks overwhelming. I have no idea how we're going to do this, God, but I know you can. Look at verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Remember how I said earlier that if God calls you to do something seemingly crazy, it may not be good to tell everyone till it's over because they're going to tell you how wrong you are. The only thing better is when you find a believer in God and Christ just as crazy and faithful as you are. That's a beautiful thing. The armor bearer doesn't argue. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? There's a priest in the camp. Let's go, let's go see if he can pray to God for us and offer some sacrifices. He doesn't say, Jonathan, it's a great idea. Wait right here. There's some other men. Let me go grab them. All of us will go and fight the Philistine garrison. He doesn't say any of that. No, he knows the character of Jonathan. He's willing to follow Jonathan as Jonathan follows God. That's awesome. Do you know a Christian brother or sister with such faith that you would put your life in their hands? I hope that you do. Someone that says, you know what? God's called me to do this. Let's go. And wants to take you along. And you don't hesitate to go with them. I hope we all know people like this. I hope we're all people like this. I hope this is our testimony. Look at verses 8 to 11. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands. And this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. Like, wait a second, didn't we just talk about signs a minute ago? Now, for all the faith that Jonathan has displayed, he doesn't walk forward blindly. The difference here is where Gideon was already told by God what he should do and how he should do it, and he needed proof. Jonathan's walking forward not even knowing what God's will is. That's the difference in asking the question. It's not superstitious in this regard because it's all they had. You see, until Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose on the third day, and sits at the right hand of his Father, 
There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have now. In John 16, 13, Jesus told us, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Before Jesus, the priest would go to God and inquire of what God had for the people. Gideon did much the same thing with the fleece. It was an either or test. They didn't have the spirit to rely on. The problem is that many people use those stories and as an excuse today. I'm putting out my fleece for the Lord, seeing if he wants me to do that or not. They don't rely on the Holy Spirit that we have a relationship with. All we have to do is ask. Because of the death of Jesus, we can ask and God will speak to us. The sheep know his voice. That still small voice will speak to you if you ask. Now, will he still use signs sometimes? Yeah, he will. But it's not his ideal. His ideal is that we would be so closely rooted in him that we walk along knowing his voice daily. That's the goal. I'm not saying I'm there yet. That's the goal. Furthermore, Jonathan throws out this test, but there's no indication of a plan B. It doesn't say what's going to happen if, you know, they say, okay, don't come up to us. We're going to come down to you. Does he run at that point? Do they fight to their death? I mean, Jonathan's walking into this just with faith. He doesn't care what the plan B is. Whatever God has, I'm okay with. God can deliver victory into our hands. And if he chooses not to, well, he's God and that's his choice. That's faith. I love it. Look at verses 12 to 15. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will tell you something, I'm sure. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow and an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. <laughs> That's awesome. So the Philistines passed the test. Hey, great. They didn't know what test they were passing. They had no idea. Jonathan and his armor bearer slaughtered 20 men. And they said that was just the first slaughter, so we don't even know what happens after that. But remember that only Jonathan has a sword. So the armor bearer is one bad dude with a shovel. Guy's awesome. <laughs> Two men faithful to God kill 20. Saul couldn't get it done with 300,000, with 3,000, or 600. And as you study this section of scripture out, you see that Saul becomes jealous of his own son, and ultimately David who was much like Jonathan. Saul was jealous of their victories when all he ever had to do was surrender and believe in faith. Instead, he lives a life of fear. God chose to use Jonathan and David because of their faith, not because of their victories. It wasn't because they proved how good they were. The victories were a byproduct of walking with God by faith. It's the same warning to us. 
if we seek after the victories and the recognition in this life, stand back and watch somebody else be used by God because that's what's going to happen. Look at verses 16 to 23. Now Saul's watchmen in Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at, the, at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond beth Aven. So finishing out our study, we see Saul and the army witness the Philistine army melting away, and immediately they're like, what happened? I know something's happened. Saul knew his son. He knew Jonathan, much like Jonathan knew his father. And Saul counts the people, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. So what does fearful Saul do? Praise the Lord, the enemy's leaving. Praise God! No. See, happy, sing hallelujah, my son has been victorious. This is his son. It's like your son hitting a home run in a little league game. You know, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, do we get that? No. Is Jonathan okay? There was a battle. I see people running. Uh, only two men from our camp left, so it must have been horrendous. You know, is Jonathan okay? No, none of that. Nope, right back to the good luck charms. He asked for the ark of God to be brought. Only it doesn't even make it because Saul gets impatient again, just like he did with Samuel, and orders everyone to the battle instead. It's hard to take credit for a battle if you're not there. Even the Israelites who had deserted them, they come out of hiding. They want to fight. Everyone wants to fight when, when it's on the winning team. How many people were willing to stand when they weren't the winning team? How many were willing to go into battle not knowing the outcome and trusting that whatever the outcome was, <laughs> it was God? Only Jonathan and his armor bearer. Only two. Verse 23 really says it all. It says, the Lord delivered Israel that day. It wasn't Jonathan or his faith that won the battle. It was the Lord. It was Jonathan letting God be God, trusting in his character. And really, isn't that the point to our own lives? To let God be God and have faith and believe that he is who he said he is? You know, Saul couldn't let God be God because that would mean that Saul wasn't. The Israelites made Saul their king, but Saul took it a step further, and he put himself on the throne of his own heart. And the result was fear. Fear of everything before him. Because whatever he faced, he had to do it alone and out of his own strength. If you're sitting here today, and that sounds like your life, then do something about it. 
Christ died for us yet while we were still sinners. Put Christ on the throne of your heart. Believe that God is bigger than whatever is in front of you. Walk forward, not in fear, but knowing that the great I am can provide for you. He can deliver you and he can win the battle that's in front of you, whatever it is. Then there was Jonathan, his armor bearer. Both are distinctly different, but both follow the Lord in faith. You see, it wasn't the armor bearer's idea to go into battle against the Philistines. And you may be sitting here thinking, you know, I, I, I want to follow the Lord. I want to have faith like that, but I don't even know where to start. You start with Jesus, we just said. After that, find a leader in the Lord and follow them. I've been very fortunate in my life to have mature men in the faith that were willing to bring me alongside. I didn't know much. I knew they were following the Lord and that's what I wanted. And they were faithful enough to bring me along with them. So if that's you, find those men of faith and follow them. It'll be amazing what kind of battles you guys get in. It'll be fun. Lastly, come to Jonathan. Jonathan was a follower by his character. Now, you might think that's strange to say. You know, he's a military commander. No, people followed him. You know, his armor bearer followed him. His men followed him. No, Jonathan was a leader because of who he followed. He trusted in the character and the nature of God and followed what God had for his life. Jonathan had victories in his life because he let the Lord lead. Jonathan trusted when what was in front of him didn't make sense. It's not logical. Jonathan didn't place his faith in rituals hoping that God would listen. Maybe I can twist God's arm a little bit to listen to me. No. Jonathan had a relationship with God and knew the God he worshipped. And that shaped everything that he did, all his decisions and how he walked forward. Is that you? Can you take steps forward simply believing and trusting in God? Or do you need to know the outcome every time you ask God something? Do you need the assurance of a fleece all the time? Or do you listen? Do you listen for God's still small voice to guide you? Can you look at the circumstances in front of you and then look down at your shovel in your hand and believe that God loves you enough to fight the battle for you? It doesn't matter what weapon you have because he's going to do it. And if you have trouble believing that concept, think about the hell that we all face because of the sin in our lives. We sin over and over. And our punishment, our destiny was hell. But Jesus came and fought the battle for us. He saw us standing there with our shovel, not fighting with our shovel, just digging a hole. You know, sinning over and over again, digging this big hole. And what did he do? He came to us in love. He took the shovel and he stepped down in the hole into the grave for us. That's the God we worship. That's the Christ that we worship. When you see your brother or sister next to you, trembling in fear a little bit because of what they're facing in their life, remind them it's not fear that we walk in, it's faith. And remind them of who that faith is in. 
It's in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our, our testimony as we walk forward in this life is to have a life guided by faith and not fear. To have a, a life that is guided by your still small voice and not by what we see in front of us. That, Father, no matter what we're facing as we stand here today, we know that you can conquer it. And Father, we pray, place our lives in your very hands, knowing that that's the safest place we could possibly be. Father, I pray that the congregation is encouraged today, that you love us enough to take our place, and that you love us enough to give us your written word to speak so many thousands of years later something so relevant to us today. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope the Lord has spoken to you through his word today. If you've got questions or comments about this message, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're in the Wichita area and don't have a church that you call home, I hope you'll drop by and check us out. You can always get current service times and directions at area code 316-263-3804 or online at www.ccwichita.org. Most importantly, though, please remember... God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. And the penalty for that sin is eternal death. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to pay that price, to die that death for us. That's why Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago. He died so we wouldn't have to. And he rose again in glory, promising eternal life with him forever for those who put their trust in him. So if you haven't decided what to do with the cross, why not say yes to Christ's free gift of salvation right now? You can do it wherever you are simply by praying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I confess I am a sinner and I need your free gift of salvation. Jesus, please come into my life. Be my Savior and be my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture tells us if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are his. So pick up a Bible and start reading. Begin at the Gospel of John to understand and rejoice in everything it means to be a child of God. If you're in the Wichita area, I hope that you'll stop by. We'll make sure you have a Bible along with some materials to help you begin your walk with the Lord. If you're not close by, feel free to give us a call. We'll be glad to help you find a solid Bible teaching church in your area. Thanks again for listening. May the Lord richly bless you as you commit your ways to Him. 